ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This podcast is produced on the lands of the Bunurong, Bunwarung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation, as well as the Wurundjeri, Gadigal and Waramai people and people of the Kanamaluka. Back in the era when I grew up, the hotels in Launceston and Hobart would just refuse to serve dark-skinned Aboriginals. The name Mansell and Maynard was synonymous with being Aboriginal, so we would be refused jobs. So you wouldn't give your name when you, when you first went there. Hey, I'm Joe Lauder, and this is a bonus episode of Saving the Franklin, Season 3 of Dig. The Franklin campaign isn't just an environmental conservation story. It's also a story about Aboriginal heritage. Before the campaign, there was this belief that this part of the southwest of Tasmania had never been occupied. It was a complete wilderness. But then that all changed with the rediscovery of Kudakana Cave. For this bonus episode, producer Pia Wersu sat down with Tasmanian Palawa man, activist and lawyer Michael Mansell to talk about this chapter in history and why he saw many of the environmental activists as racist. Everything white people did was right. When we went to school, whatever they taught us was right. If we'd go back home and we'd hear a totally different story, oh, it's funny that we think this way, but the white people are right first come over and started going to school here, you're going to have a feed of Cunnigong. And the white kids would say, yeah, you can't eat that. And I said, it was beautiful and sweet. You know, you get the behind the flower, you pull it off when it, the flower's dead and squeeze it, it's a strawberry. And they called it pig face. And I'd never heard of pig face. I remember the teacher asked something and said, that's Cunnigong. No, it's not, she said, it's pig face. Oh, sorry. You know, so when I went home, I told my parents, oh, that we call that stuff Cunnigong, but it's actually pig face. And they just stared at me, I remembered it. And then years later, of course, I realised this is how assimilation occurs. It sounds a lot like your learning about your ancestry was just part of the fabric of your life. You mentioned a particular story about the kangaroo. Are you able to share that with me? The first black man was made at Cox's Bite, right down the southern part of Tasmania. And at that time, the kangaroo couldn't bend and had to walk on stiff legs. And Moinia, the uh, spirit from the stars, was called down and asked, can you help the kangaroo? And he said, all right. So he called the devils out of the ground and they cut the back of the legs of the kangaroo And the kangaroo was so grateful that he could finally bend and sit down that he said, I will do anything for the spirits. And the spirits said, well, you now must become the first black man. And he said, I will. And so he then leapt from the beach onto the rocket at Cox's Bite and became the rock. And that's the first black man. And from there, we evolved and we come from, you know, our spirit is the kangaroo and Moinia, the, the stars. And what did those stories tell you about the relationship that your ancestors had with this land? You can see from just that example that how can you separate the people who come from the animals who were created by the animals in 
conjunction with the spirits in the stars. How can you treat the land as an object? Given that, how do you think of the concept wilderness? It's not wilderness. That's, that's where we come from. That's our country. All our memories are there. Our people were there. I can't see what there is about wilderness. I mean, for people who live in the city and you say, oh, it's out there in the wild and it's wilderness, I can understand that. But Aboriginal people don't see it that way. How do you reflect on the use of that term during the Franklin campaign? It was tailored towards gaining the middle-class vote. It was tailored towards white society. That's why we were bit players in that political debate. The connotation of wilderness among so many million voters in Sydney, of course, is, well, you know, I can do what I like in Sydney, but, yes, I want to protect that wilderness down in Tasmania. So it was a clever campaign and we knew that the whole narrative wasn't intended to be about Aboriginal people. It was intended to be designed to gain the sympathy of these not so much Tasmanian voters, but these big voting groups on the mainland, Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane. When Kutakana Cave was rediscovered, there was this huge archaeological interest, which of course ended up being really pivotal in stopping the damming of the Franklin. When did you find out about that archaeological interest in the cave? I think some Aborigines in the South knew about it. So I was made aware of that by Aborigines in the southern part of the state. The battle initially over the Franklin River was between the archaeologists and the environmental movement who were using our cultural heritage as a reason for them to achieve their aims, which was environmental. And we took umbrage at, again, another section of white Tasmania who are using Aboriginal people, not recognising our existence or our rights, but very willing to use our history to their advantage for their political ends. They didn't come anywhere near the Aboriginal community to say, do we have your permission? They just regarded it as open slather to do what they like. Then we saw the environmental movement pick up these reports and they were making the point that this is so valuable to mankind which we agree with, but that's our heritage, not mankind's. That belongs to us. And once you start taking Aboriginal culture away from Aboriginal people and collectively owning it as part of mankind, what have we got left? Our initial interest was to inform the environmental movement, Robin Gray and anybody else, you're talking about our history. You're treating it as just a subject matter that you can use for your own purposes. The government on the one hand was saying, oh, you know, it's just, you know, there's plenty of other Aboriginal sites around, so the loss of this is not that important. And we were saying to them, that's not your decision to make, that's ours. And the environmental movement, of course, were using it for political purposes and, again, without our consent. So we had no friends and so we had to sort of come in as very bit players and to try to make our presence felt. You say that some of these environmental protesters were as racist as 
you know, your rednecks. Can you explain what you mean by that? Their constant theme was that because they were trying to protect the environment for mankind, they couldn't conceptually understand that the land was taken from Aboriginal people. Do you understand that? I don't want to understand that. I'm locked into this thing about the environment belongs to all of us. Yeah, that may well be so, but that was taken from us. You white people have retained the right to inherit the property from your fathers. Our right to inherit our land and our culture has been taken away by people of your race. And you have responsibility today to stand up and say, yes, we're here to protect the environment, but we acknowledge that Aboriginal people and their right to inherit their land should be respected and we support that. But you couldn't shift them. And they would say, no, the land belongs to all of us. In effect, it was no different to a white person down the pub saying, we took the land off you, you black bastards, and you'll never get it back. What was the difference? You know, they are both telling us exactly the same thing. That in itself created division between the Aboriginal movement and the environmental movement at that ground level. I remember going into Warner's Landing and we knew that you couldn't light a fire on that peat because it would turn up five mile somewhere else and the whole forest would go up. We knew that, so we're sitting up around a camp, we're trying to clear a place. So one of the greenies comes over, one of these Sydney ones, you're not allowed to light a fire there. You cannot tell blackfellas what to do in the bush. So what a blackfella do? Well, immediately light a fire. So over comes that 50, 60 greenies come around all chanting at us and, you know, them versus us. It got to that level of real, almost to violence. That was a dangerous moment. That made me realise that, you know, when someone tries to tell you what you can't do on your own land and all of these horrible memories come back of all of the racism that your parents have faced, it all floods back in that instant. It's not just what the person says to you, it's all of these memories, your upbringing, that suddenly fuses to that and sparks that one moment. It wasn't just a flippant comment taken in a different way because of the history of what we've put up with, people need to be aware of it. It was another example of the clash of cultures, the clash of thinking about things. In one sense, the Greenies thought we're all there for the same reason, but we weren't. Yes, you can amalgamate your forces as long as there's respect and as long as you understand each other's position. By the time we finished down there with them, we could sit around and see that we had a lot in common with them. They were a lot more respectful. They understood our grievance and they would respond accordingly. So in that 12 months, couple of years, the environmentalists who went down there changed their attitude and outlook towards Aboriginal people. That made life a lot easier for us when we went down there. Your experience at Kutakaina Cave on the Franklin River was clearly a really poignant moment of cultural connection. If we go to the word Kutakaina, where does that actually come from and, and why is the cave named that? As long as I can remember, it's been around. Where did it come from? 
when the language program at the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre went back and researched all the tribal language there, sure enough, it could kind of spirit of the kids. The first time I really remember Kutikaina, I was about three years old. I was out on the West Beach on Babel Island. I remember it was coming on dusk and the bigger boys had made these sort of boats out of sand for us and old galvanised tin and put us little kids in it. So as the water come in and we're sitting there, imagine we're out in boats. And I remember all the parents yelling out, come on, you kids, it's tea time, come in, come in. And all of a sudden I heard these big boys or someone yelling out, look out, Kuddy Kiner's coming. I remember swinging around and I saw Kuddy Kiner coming out of the water. And he was black and he had these horrible long locks. I cannot remember as a three-year-old my feet touching the ground when I ran crying up to my mum, could he kind of, could he, yes, could he kind of will get you, you come in here. And I was telling this story 30 years later and Clyde's sitting there laughing. I said, you were there, Clyde? He said, yeah. He said, that was Percy Maynard. He apparently put all this bull kelp over his head. So all I saw was a black man with these huge big locks and he obviously didn't have his clothes on and his body was black. And I was convinced that's Kuddy Kiner, the, the devil. And so we all grew up with that. So it had just been passed down and none of us knew where, but just everybody knew it. So this cave on the Franklin, you know, named after the spirit of the children, it sounds like the spirit that kept kids in line. What was it like in there? The moment you entered that cave, it was just pure silence, which made you understand more. This cave was full of life at one stage, and now it's silent. And here we are coming back, putting Aboriginal life back into a culture that had been practised there for thousands of years. It was a real responsibility to have to do that. And I was glad I wasn't on my own. I was glad that Ros and Max were with me. Why? Because, you know, we're not an individual. Nothing's individual about the Aboriginal culture. Now, everything's collective. It's we, us. It's sharing, which is the way that I was brought up. So I don't think I would have enjoyed as much going into that really ancient history on my own as I did with a, with other Aborigines with me because we could, you didn't have to say anything, you knew that they were appreciating it as much as I was. After you left the cave and made your way downstream, and this is during that blockade period, you were arrested. What happened? The police had set up on one of the islands before you get to Warner's Landing. Roz thought it was a good idea that we go up and introduce ourselves and say to them, this is our land, you're on our land, you've made your camp here. The Greenies didn't come and ask us permission, but you should have, you know, you're Tasmania police. And the moment we went up there, this big sergeant came down and said, arrest them. And no matter how diplomatic but assertive Roz was, she just couldn't get through to him. He said, no. And she's saying, listen, we're not here protesting. That's our heritage up there and you're on our land here. You know, when I look back on it, 
here were these white policemen telling Aborigines, we're charging you probably with trespass on your own land just because we white coppers have been told by the government to protect those people are going to dam and flood your culture. So that was ironical. Once we got down around the sort of lower Gordon, they transferred us onto a police boat that took us across Macquarie Harbour. Two coppers were inside this sealed-off cabin. Ros and I were sitting in the back of it, out the back, completely exposed, and they were flying, you know. They, were, they didn't care about the environment. These, these were hardcore blokes. There was this big sergeant and must have been a skipper of the police. And as we are going across, I could see that Ros was really cold. We didn't have much on and Ros was shaking. So I opened the door up and I said to them, look, she's really cold. And they wouldn't let her in. And so I stacked on a turn, kept opening the door, banging on it. In the finish, I think they let her in because I think they could see that she wasn't in a really good nick. And then the sergeant came out to teach me a lesson pointed the finger in my face and and he's telling me the facts of life and he said, another word out of you, he said, and you see that water? I said, I do see the water. He said, see it rushing by? I said, I do see it rushing by. He said, you could end up there. So I remember grabbing him. But I think I said, well, let's both go in and I put him and he thought I was going to push and he jumped back and said, you're mad. And so he went back in the cab and stayed in there and I knew... I'd bluffed him because, you know, he was a lot stronger than I was and I thought if he throws me in the water, they were both going to drown, so I had no intention of doing it. But, you know, they were the sort of things. Again, it was just that the way you're brought up, if it was an old Aboriginal person telling you what to do, you'd do it. But there was a white copper wasn't going to tell me the facts of life because I was fighting for my culture and my country. What happened then when you got to Strawn? Oh, that was another story in itself. There were a hell of a lot of greenies all arrested there. By this time, I was interested in who these people were and I was interested in the attitudes of these racist little white buggers that we'd experienced going down the boat, whether these people who'd been arrested were of the same view. And I'm walking around just chatting away. And next thing, one of these uh, coppers, unnecessarily, he came out and said sit down. And I looked around, you know, behind me. I said, who are you talking to? And he said, you, sit down. I said, oh, I'm not sitting down. I said, you just get on with your paperwork. And I can remember this, these sorts of conversations because, you know, they were just fun and games. And now this copper came over and stood right up close. And he said, you'll sit down and they'll be quiet. And I knew enough about the law. You put one finger on me and I'll have you charged with assault. And see those other coppers through the window there? I'll lay a complaint with them because they're witnessing and they're watching. And this copper, he was livid. His face was red and I thought, I've got to be careful how far I push this bloke. So he stormed away and one of his mates came in. I forgot about it by this stage and we're talking. These greenies are all... Yeah, you know, saw, oh, we've got a hero among us, you know, he's prepared to stand up the cops and they're all laughing. And this other cop came in and said, silence, no one will speak. And they just clammed up. It occurred to me then and there that the police were familiar with this sort of situation. So was I, but these greenies were not. And 
I became even more aware when we were travelling later on in the van down to the Risen Prison. The next day they took us in a van, this like a great big meat wagon. They had no seats, just this metal floor. But on the way down there, of course, I was bored and I'd already had experience with these greenies who were inexperienced in police presence. And I said, oh, you know what happens when we get down to Risden, don't you? And they were all ears. Oh, yeah, what can you tell us? I said, well, when you get down there, my son, they will stand you up, you women too, you blokes, and they will tell you to drop all your trousers and your underpants. And all of a sudden there was silence. What for? And I said, and they'll tell you to bend over and touch your toes and they will search you. And some of them started crying. And I thought, oh, what a terrible... And so I, I just, no, look, look, I'm only mucking around. It's a joke. You know, you're on a trivial charge. You know, I've been to Risdon before. This doesn't happen. Well, we got to Risdon and they lined us up. And I remember this old bloke who remembered me who was in charge of it. I used to stutter. He said, all right. Normal search, and all these greenies they started weeping, <laughs> and I think a normal search, you know, we're only on a trespass charge, and the old fella said, "Yep, okay, tell them to drop them," and all of a sudden, the, this, all these people are crying, and I thought, "Oh my God, I didn't, you know, I didn't believe this," and then the, someone else came and said, "No, no, they're only on a trespass charge, sir, so apparently we don't have to." And I thought, oh, what a relief. <laughs> so I was in as much a state of fear as they were. Once you were processed and in, what was prison life like for the days that you were there? I thought, well, yeah, I'm out of my depth here. And so I thought, oh, well, you know, I need to know what the ropes are. And when we went for breakfast, everybody was seated at these tables and there was one guy on his own. And I thought, oh, he looks lonely, so I'll go over and sit alongside him. So I'm chatting away to him and he's only just grunting back and he said, what are you in for? And I said, trespass with the greenies here. I was telling him about it. And I said, what are you in for? And he said, murder. <laughs> I thought, no wonder no one's sitting alongside him. Oh, there's some real characters down there, I can tell you. Absolutely sounds like it. And so how did you reflect on that experience of being arrested, trying to explain that, you know, we're not part of the environmental movement, we're here for another reason? How did you reflect on that? I didn't expect anything, Pia. We didn't expect anything better. When I was in the, the media around that time, it was all, he can't be Aboriginal, he's got blue eyes. Anyway, there's no Aborigines in Tasmania. The Mansells are only half-castes anyway. Even the seeking public acknowledgement of the truth, you couldn't get it. So when you talk to the government, you weren't really expecting them to say, OK, we'll sit down and talk to you about it. We knew it wouldn't happen. And so after the return from the Franklin River, it was more or less back to the salt mines and keep plugging away because we didn't expect anyone to acknowledge us. But as it turned out, we did start to get acknowledgement. Suddenly, the Aboriginal element of Franklin River started to become an issue the national media started to pick up the Aboriginal cause and gradually the Tasmanian media started falling into line and giving the Aboriginal story some hearing. 
The Aboriginal heritage in Kutakana Cave was so central to the case that ended up in the High Court that resulted in saving the Franklin. But that heritage still wasn't actually in Aboriginal ownership or custodianship. Was that on your mind after the High Court decision? Our view was that the High Court should have said, as part of their judgment, these caves have got to go back to Aboriginal people. But of course, the court wasn't going to do that. The key point then was, if the court is going to protect it under the race powers for the benefit of Aboriginal people, is that the end of it? Or what happens to your cultural history that's in those caves? Does it just stop there? So we just kept the campaign up till 1995 and we got them back. When the parliament passed land rights legislation in 1995, three of the areas that were included in the parcels of land returned were the caves. Something that really strikes me, Michael, is how important that learning and cultural connection has been throughout your life. I think everybody likes to connect with their past and learn more about it because it makes you more wholesome. And, you know, so you want to learn all the time. And, you know, even as old as I am, I'm still learning. If you want to listen to the full series, check out Saving the Franklin, season three of the ABC's Dig podcast. Search for it now or find it on the ABC Listen app. This series is reported and hosted by me, Joe Lauder. Pia Wersu is our producer and reporter. Bethany Atkinson Quinton is our supervising producer. Tynan King is our researcher. Our executive producer is Claire Rawlinson. Engineering by John Jacobs and our original theme music by Casey Holford. Special thanks to Tim Roxburgh. I'm Sana Kadar, and I host a podcast called All in the Mind. And if you've ever wondered how our brains work or why people behave the way they do, you'll love All in the Mind. It's a psychology podcast that explores everything from mental health to artificial intelligence, with topics like how our brains interpret fantasy novels, what psychological techniques scammers use, and what it's like living with bipolar disorder. Find All in the Mind on the ABC Listen app.